0: hey petty fans welcome to episode 8 of the richard petty motorsports podcast presented by petty's garage presented by petty's garage uh this week we have another legend oh yes we are on location we're at the nascar hall of fame and our guest is executive director of the hall of fame winston kelly winston kelly awesome stories in this podcast i i just kind of just want to jump into it absolutely um when you're listening to this podcast we just finished up the race in las vegas getting ready to head to phoenix uh this week and if you're not familiar with winston for some reason you probably have heard his voice on the mrn broadcast Uh, he's also a very close family friend of the Petties, and that shines through in this interview lifelong petty fan so can't thank him enough for his time can't thank the hall of fame enough for letting us come set up in their space and record this episode and really excited for you all to hear it so here's winston
1: uh, Winston Kelly, uh, and that's spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y, uh, and I grew up in Concord, North Carolina, and uh, I am the executive director here at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It's an awesome title to have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those who can do, those who don't just have a title. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: first and foremost, thanks again for taking time out of your busy day. I know you got a crazy schedule and lots going on right now to chat with two knuckleheads like us, so thank you.
1: Uh, ha- happy to be here and uh, you know when I, when I think about uh, all that the petty family means to me personally and all the petty family means to the industry, uh, you know if if you're aso- if you're associated with a petty family, you're good people and your family as far as I'm concerned.
0: I appreciate that thank you very much I th- I'd like to agree with that too <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: and uh, we were we were talking a lot uh, leading up to this episode and and me and me and Bradley both were saying, you know growing up. It on a Sunday drive, you know, you put on the radio in the car. You guys were like family, you and your team. I mean, it's it's etched into my memory. I yeah. know um, just as a kid looking out the window, no tinted windows back then. <laughs> sun's pouring in. You're going down the highway and you're listening to you guys call a race. And it's it means a lot for us to, to be here. We really Definitely. we really appreciate the memories we have. And for being here today, so thank you. Well,
1: that that's how I became a fan—just listening to races, going to race races with my dad, uh, and you know I think we all are in that same boat. Talk a
0: little bit about your dad's position and how that kind of inspired you to follow in his footsteps.
1: Well, dad was the first public relations director at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, uh, and he did that up until uh, through 1964. Uh, and then left and, and went to work for another organization. Then he and mom bought an auto parts store in Concord. Well, as PR director for Charlotte, he did a lot of public address announcing work because he had been in and around. He actually drove a little bit, not yeah. a whole lot, but he, uh, he did a lot of PA work. He had been a newspaper man before he went to the, uh, to the Speedway uh, and just you know promoted races and had grown up around it himself or, or had been around it himself. He didn't grow up around it. Uh, So he had done a lot of of, uh, PA-type work, which led to him working for the Universal Racing Network on a part-time basis. So if he went to the race close enough to the Rockinghams, the Martinsvilles, the Atlantas, uh, my brother and I would tag along with him if we could. Uh, And the very first race I ever went to, he was still at the Speedway, was the 1964 Daytona 500 uh he was down there for two and a half three weeks or something back then they did that they took my older brother who's uh about 19 months older than i am and i out of school got our school work and all so we went down for the week and got to go to the track some and so we went to the qualifying races and i'm six years old at the time so i remember enough about it in the week uh well and as you might know the king won the race and uh, I got to meet him after the race. And I can't remember if it was in Victory Lane or up in the press box, but there is a, there's actually a picture. We've used it here in the hall, uh, unbeknownst to me, mm. but it's in, in the Petty Museum of Richard sitting on the car, and there's a guy holding a microphone. That's Dad. Oh, wow. So that, uh, that uh, is, is there. Uh, and I remember Richard made, you know, he acknowledged me. Uh, and mom likes to tell the story, and you know I'm not going to argue with my mom. Mom tells the story <laughs> that I tugged on his uniform, and I think this was in the press box, that I was tugging on his uniform to get his attention while dad was talking to him, and, and he leaned down, and I told him, I was pulling for fireball till he fell out of the race, and I started pulling for you. <laughs> and she said it went out over the PA and all that. Now, you know, mom swears that story's true, And, you know, when you think about it, okay, I'm six years old. Fireball had his lavender car, and Richard had the petty blue car, so it's probably that Mm -hmm. that attracted me. But the fact that Richard, you know, more than acknowledged me, and he's no different. And, And I've got a picture on my desk now that he was giving me an autograph i'm probably about eight years old i think just looking at the picture a couple of years later behind probably you know, the the station wagon that miss linda would take to the track and feed it and have chicken and all out of it of him giving me an autograph and i found that picture while we were building the hall of fame and and wow. how i even stumbled across it, i think is a god thing uh and there's another one in there that we can talk about later but anyway i looked at at it and the thing that it struck me is he treats me the same today and that and and when we open the hall as he did that day and he treats everybody that way and that's what i've told our staff and that's what i said at the groundbreaking that if the biggest name in the sport can treat everybody the same that's our north star that's what Mm -hmm. we need to do so i keep that picture on my desk and we talk about it a lot because and that's the first race i went to yeah i became a lifelong petty fan because of that and then you know saw him and others uh uh you know as i grew up but back to your original question if dad went to rockingham you know and called the turns we would tag along with him or if we went to atlanta if it was in the summer back then he would take us uh and we'd go to the braves game on saturday and the race on sunday and you know if your dad hunts and fishes you tend to hunt and fish so i grew up around the sport and just always had the bug and wanted to be involved in it but you couldn't make a living broadcasting back when i graduated uh, from college so i just got involved you know from a part-time standpoint
0: That's awesome. So I know you mentioned in that story you got pulled out of school and brought all your homework and stuff. It made me think back to my childhood where I missed a lot of Mondays after Martinsville because it rained so often. (laughs) Yeah, my dad had no problem uh, letting me take off a day and come back to the track with him.
1: You know, and I honestly, now that you mention that, I don't ever remember a rain delay that Dad stayed over uh, and and missed a, a day of work. You know, he he ran the store and he could have. But I don't ever remember having a rain delay. Now that I think about it, I know I struggled uh, if I would have them working for MRN and Duke Power at the same time, uh, while I worked for people that totally understood it at Duke Power and knew that you know that that was my hobby, and it was no different than somebody taking a Monday off to play golf or you know take their kids to play soccer or something like that. But I don't I don't ever remember. Uh, having a rain delay with Dad, or hmm. you know, that would have been an overnight. It could have happened that you know he drove us home from Martin's and went back and called the race on Monday. I just don't remember it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you talked about the Universal Racing Network. Was that like a pre-MRN? Was that similar to that? Or
1: it is very similar. So a guy out of uh, Winston Salem, he's passed away. Got him Hank Schoolfield. He was uh, very prominent in journalism. Uh, in the early days, uh, in NASCAR, he had a company called universal services that did a lot of printing of everything from church bulletins, but also he had a magazine called uh, Southern motor racing, uh, and Hank and universal racing network covered, they probably covered, you know, 18, 20 races a year. Dad probably did an average of about 12, you know, they were the network before the motor racing network in the 60s that's where okay. Ned Jarrett got his start when he got out of out of the car and started with URN and uh you know Hank Hank was an interesting guy he gave me my first opportunity in 1981 I wanted to get my foot in the door so I called Hank and I said have you got anything that I can do you know I just I want you know he knew who I was and uh, that I wanted to be involved. but How, I had,
0: old, were you, how old were you at this time?
1: Uh, I would have been uh, about 22-ish, 23. Uh, I would have been about 23 at that time. I was working full-time at, at Duke Power at one of the nuclear plants at that time and thought, okay, now's the time to try to get my foot in the door. And uh, he said, well, I need a statistician for the races, and uh, it pays $50 a race and a motel room. No no expenses, you know, so if I went to Richmond or Atlanta, I was losing money. Right. But I didn't care. <laughs> yeah, I didn't care. Up there for <laughs> if day, it yeah. had paid me nothing, I'd have gone. Yeah, but you'd right. paid fifty dollars a race and if I could carpool, but I, you know, got a hotel room and you know, if it was a Rockingham, I just drive down Sunday morning because mm-hmm. they weren't doing the Saturday races uh, and whatnot. So you are in uh, did most a lot of the races, but nobody did all of the races. And it wasn't Hank's full-time job. You know, he was general track general manager at North Wilkesboro, which, you know, that helped me advance. That's where I got to do some PA work and actually got to be on the microphone. But it wasn't what Hank did on a full-time basis. And so that's in the 80s. Uh, Dad started with them in uh, like 1965, 64, 65. And UNRN uh, had been around a while. I don't know their exact origin. But in 1969, leading into the '70 season is when Bill France Sr. said, we need somebody that'll do all the races. We need a network that'll be kind of like a marketing arm, but mm-hmm. to, to make sure all the races are on the radio. And that's when he asked Ken Squire to start what became Motor Racing Network. And over time, and with no disrespect to Hank, MRN advanced their equipment. You know they had the remote equipment you know when when i would go with dad if he was on pit road i'd go get the drivers that fell out of the race and bring them to dad because it was on hard line mm. and over time mrn invested because that's what they were going to do long haul and this wasn't hank's primary uh, job his primary job was universal services that had many arms to it printing and whatnot and then he was track general manager at, at north wilkesboro so you know, over time, uh, URN kind of phased out, if you will, uh, and, and, you know, MRN through the 70s and then became, you know, the network, you know, uh, and actually the 81, the first year that I was on with URN, or I was a statistician, we did 11 races, we had five tracks, actually did an IndyCar race and two Cup races in Atlanta. We had Martinsville, Richmond, Rockingham, and Darlington. I think were the ones that we had, and then all the good ones. Phased out. <laughs> you know and, and you know i could I could afford to drive to them right. uh, we weren't i didn't have to you know drive across country, but uh that's kind of how it started.
0: It sounds like they had a pretty good vision for mrN, you know, like that kind of knew what they wanted or would, would you say that or
1: I mean, you know, if if you ask anybody, I would I did not personally know Bill France Senior, but if you ask people that knew him, and you ask for how would you describe him, visionary would be mm. what you would hear people talk about. Going back to his vision of forming NASCAR in 1947 and how he got those people together at the Streamline Hotel, and it was exactly the same with MRN, knowing that you know it wasn't something. I think if Hank had chosen that this is what I want to do and I want to grow it. You know, my, my gut feeling, I never asked Hank. I never asked Bill Jr. Or anybody like that. But I think because it just wasn't something that was going to happen that, that Bill Sr. saw, this is something we need to make sure everybody can listen to the races. And it was when, you know, you might have a little snippet of one on an ABC Wide World of Sports back in that time. But, you know, radio was the predominant form of getting two people mm-hmm. back in the late 60s and early 70s and he had that vision, and he got dead on the right person in Ken Squire to actually do it, and, and I think Ken shared that vision with him. So, you know, it, it's been exactly that, you know, and, and while TV uh, has evolved so much over the years, I think what, what MRN has done over the last 50-plus years, and, and am I biased? Yeah, but when I, <laughs> you know, when I look at, yeah. at, at everything that MRN has done and the people that have come through it, uh, behind the scenes and on the microphones it's uh it's done exactly what bill senior uh, thought it should do could do and and would do for the sport
0: mm-hmm. well you're talking to two guys here that like we said at the opening of the show you know ingrained in our childhood you know that it's, it's kind of the soundtrack to sunday afternoons if we weren't in front of a tv uh, so it's I think it was more than successful. It continues to be successful. Yeah, I didn't have the
1: option of the TV back when I was, was growing up. I mean, I remember sitting under the tree listening to the first Talladega race uh, because that was in 69 that Dad did with URN because uh, MRN came into fold in 1970 and started with uh, the NAS- the, uh, the what were then uh, ISC tracks, Daytona-Talladega, and then just kind of evolved from there. But uh, radio was the only way that, that we could keep up with it.
0: So i know you got to mrn and you were started out as kind of like a gopher status uh, if you don't mind share the story of who couldn't make it to the track and how you got kind of thrown into your first experience with mrn
1: yeah uh i started pestering mrn about 1987 uh you know that i wanted to work with them and and was you know they called it a production assistant it was a gopher i'd help you know set up equipment tear down equipment either be a spotter in the turns or run information so that's early 87. so you know it gave me a chance to do some more pa but it was the latter part of 1988 that john McMullen, the president uh and he was always up front with me you know i didn't have a radio background and and uh, all that so uh he had told me that he was going to give me a shot the end of october at the double header that had the modified race in the bush race so that's that's fine. You know, I was just happy to to be in the in the mix and uh, so in September in the Cup Race weekend Saturday there was a bush race but it was not being aired but they were doing an audition for a couple of guys in the turn. And he said, "Well, why don't you go on pit road and you can, you know, go through the same motions, do a couple of interviews and if somebody falls out of the race, talk to him or describe what happens." Uh, to give you a little bit of practice for you know six seven weeks down the road so okay happy to do that and it was great practice because they'd stop during the middle of the uh, the broadcast and give feedback to all of us you know which you can't do in a regular race you know and and I think uh, Joe Moore and, and Barney or Joe Moore and Eli were up in the booth whoever it was they'd give you feedback so I'm making notes uh, the the next morning to run information. There were two pit roads at that time: one on the front straightaway, one on the back. Mike Joy was going to do the front straightaway, and uh, Jim Phillips was going to do the back straightaway. And I'm making notes to be able to, you know, know where everybody's pitting and where I could run information. And it's probably a couple of hours at the most before the race. And John said, "Do you think you're ready for this?" And I said, "I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be." And they yeah. said you know put your you're gonna be on the air mike joy was fogged in in roanoke uh apparently he had some kind of commitment on saturday and was going to come in uh on saturday night and or sunday morning and i don't remember the exact flights because he got fogged in and wasn't able to be there uh and you know it's sometimes you just got to be in the right place at the right time but having spent well over a year and a half it's like and i didn't have time to get nervous right (laughs) so you know it 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 worked out for me and you know mike was in a place in his career that he was transitioning he was still doing radio but he was already doing tv with cbs and and things like that uh you know and there was no animosity it's just i was in the right place at the right time and there's other people you know within the last 10 years that if i couldn't stay over for a race uh because of my full-time job or something like that that i'm sure the same things happened for them
0: yeah I love that story, you know, because I feel like it probably would have happened anyways, but it's just, you know, it's neat how one day something goes wrong and you're the guy for the job and here we are.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't, must not have screwed it up too bad. or they, You know, <laughs> they they invited me back and then I got to do, you know, a few more in the garage area the, the rest of that year and then started doing more in 89 and just kind of went from there.
0: I've always noticed uh, like an incredible chemistry with the MRN broadcast. You know, my whole life I felt like, um i feel like the chemistry between you guys you know you barney hall joe moore uh dave moody jeff Striegel, alex hayden all those guys i don't i don't know if i've ever seen a chemistry like that in any other sports broadcasting period yeah. you know what do you think um what do you think made that so special you know it sounds like a bunch of just friends hanging out and sharing what they're seeing with the people that are listening
1: I think I think there's a number of reasons. I think, number one, if you, <clears throat> you you go back to Barney Hall, Barney is the voice of NASCAR, in my opinion, and, and all due respect to Ken Squire, Ken was the voice and storyteller and on TV, but if you look at just the voice and right. you close your eyes, to me, Barney Hall is the voice and the radio voice of MRN or, or of NASCAR in general, and Barney always used to say, if you stick to the race, you can't have a bad broadcast. You got, and and it's not about the guy holding a the microphone. There's one person that ever tuned in because I was on the radio, and that was my mother. <laughs> and when my mother passed away, nobody's ever tuned in. And as somebody who's a broadcaster, I've got ones I like. You know, I like Jim Nance, but I'm not gonna say, okay, well, I'm gonna watch this golf tournament because he's broadcasting. I might mute somebody I don't like. Yeah, yeah. But you don't tune in because of who's broadcasting, and it's about the people. In the field, on the field, in the garage, on the racetrack, you know, in the arena. Call it whatever you want to. And that's one of the things that, that Barney taught us. So I think that's part of it. One of the things that John McMullen did a very good job of is everybody knew their role. And it doesn't mean that you're restricted. It's If you stick to your role, the broadcast is then more seamless. Mm-hmm. The, the, the pit guys have a different role than the guys in the turn it's not my job if i see a wreck on the front straightaway to jump in and call that wreck now if somebody misses it because it's out of their sight and i can tell them on either the second channel or in the in in a commercial break I saw how it started every now and then they might come down and do that but that's not my job and it's not the guy's jobs in the turn to talk about strategy and fuel mileage and all that and it's you know the guys in the booth do both play-by-play they're the orchestra leader and and all that and then we spend a lot of time uh in the commercial breaks talking about what's going on in addition to busting on each other (laughs) so but I think the other thing the other two things are we like each other you might not know it if you listen to the commercial <laughs> channel, but we like each other and we've got a passion for NASCAR. You know, you add all that stuff together focusing on the racetrack, uh, you know, doing your job, what, what your job is, uh, the passion for motorsports, and the fact that we like each other. I think, you know, and, and there have, there are people, there were people that were trying to get their foot in the door when I was, that it was about them. And they didn't stay. And one of the best things that happened to me is spending as long as I did listening to the queue, listening to the behind the scenes and the broadcast. And, you know, if I'd have gotten put on the air real early on, I may have been too stupid to, and think it's about me. But listening to it and just watching and learning and seeing guys that made it about themselves versus it's about the team and mm-hmm. everybody had their role. And I think, you know, the, uh, That that's what barney taught us and i was told after that first broadcast that somebody that barney said uh, i'm glad the boy did good because i know how much he wanted to be here Mm. but it was by watching him
0: yeah it's it's funny how he's such an icon in that respect but he never never tried to be (laughs) he just you know
1: Barney Barney did not accept that he was an icon. (laughs) Honest to goodness, Barney didn't think he was a big deal. Mm. He, honest to goodness, did not believe that he was that big a deal. Even, you know, and I've always said the King and Junior Johnson are two that they knew they were big deals, but they never acted like it, and they never carry themselves like it. But you you know, you can't be the king <laughs> and you can't be Junior Johnson and not realize that you're a big deal. Barney never accepted that or grasped that concept. Uh, I think he appreciated in his later years that we appreciated him as our mentor and his tutelage, but he never really grasped how the fans Looked up to him. Mm-hmm. He, I think, he realized uh, that the competitors that were from Richard and Inman and those guys' days, how much they appreciated him. Uh, I don't think the younger folks appreciated him. And part of it is they didn't know him. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it wasn't and and Barney wasn't wasn't a look at me guy. So if he walked through the garage, everybody didn't know him. You know, the newer people. So that's not a disrespect right. on anybody. Uh, but one of the things that happened, Barney's last race, and it kind of came about a little bit abruptly as his health was going down, uh, that, that meant a lot to me is I went to Richard's bus, uh, and, uh, his bus driver went in there and actually woke him up. And that's the middle of the afternoon. Y'all know Richard's oh, yeah. uh, known for sleeping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, I didn't want to wake him up, uh, and, and went in there and, and he said, what's going on? I said, "Well, you know, Barney has decided that it's time to step away, and and uh, I just wonder if you could come by and speak to him, mm. put on his boots. <laughs> there he went, and uh, that meant a lot. Wow, to uh, to Barney, but it, it it's because of who it was. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: that's that's incredible. I was going to ask what your favorite Barney Hall story might have been over the years, and uh, you also led me to another question I had, which listening to the broadcasts, um, the commercial breaks are always my favorite part because y'all, we used to bust on each other, you know, was there somebody that you would say was the best at either corny jokes or getting a dig at somebody else during those commercial breaks? Or? Well,
1: Barney, Barney had the, ti- the best timing. I always said that he had a writer. <laughs> And and what his longtime girlfriend Karen confided in me and actually gave me a folder. He if he saw some kind of joke, he might stick it in a folder. But he had he had unbelievable timing. Some of his stuff was just spontaneous and it just happened. Others, uh you know, he may have had something in the back of his mind, and you really had to listen. And I missed some of them on pit road because it's noisier down there. But he'd come up with some. You know, Jeff Striegel and and myself and Alex. You know, we we've had some corny ones that are pretty bad <laughs> over the years, but Barney's were always dead on. Barney's best one, Barney's absolute best one, it was the All Star Race one year. Couldn't tell you what year. And Slim Fast was in the sport. Eli had 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 a deal with Slim Fast uh, and did commercials. And the way our commercial breaks would go is you go into a first commercial break is a network commercial that is sold by MRN. And and that's one of our commercials. And then you come back and, you know, you might have a, you know, Richard Petty's leading Dale Earnhardt second, blah, blah, blah. You give the top five uh, and we'll be back from the Charlotte Motor Speedway wherever we were. Uh, And then that's the the local commercial. So the network commercial was Slim Fast, and Eli was the one actually voicing it Mm -hmm. and came out of the the commercial break to Barney. And Barney said, yep. He said, you've been on that thing for two weeks, and all you've lost is 14 days (laughs) from the Charlotte Motor Speedway. This is MRN radio. And... (laughs) It was like a, a, a two or three second delay, and everybody but Eli just busted out laughing. And that's Barney. He would, that, I will never forget, that is the best, and, and I'm not one that'll say the, I'm like Richard, there's not the best NASCAR driver ever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, as he'll tell you, there's one that's won the most,
0: Right, but there's not the
1: best anything you know, is Hank Aaron better than Babe Ruth or vice versa? I don't know. Right. But that's the best <laughs> commercial <laughs> joke I can ever remember. And that's tr- classic Barney. So he was the best at that. The rest of us are just kind of being smart Alex with and, each other. And all
2: you lost was 14 days. Know, that is hilarious. That was, that was the best one. Well, well, well
0: I'm so I, glad we got to So We're going to take a quick break. Yeah, I want to
2: say, unfortunately, we don't have a, a really quippy way to go into our sponsor message of Petty's Garage, but... Let's hear from him real
0: quick, and we'll be back in just a second. <laughs> All right, today, the Richard Petty Motorsports Podcast is again presented by Petty's Garage.
2: Petty's Garage is from the mind of Richard Petty
0: himself. Petty's Garage is a haven for any fan of speed. That's right. Petty's Garage is a full-service speed shop dedicated to continuing the legacy and reputation of the king.
2: The experts at Petty's Garage provide exceptional engines, tuning, and high-performance parts for you, the enthusiast.
0: Famous for the high-quality service and craftsmanship, Petty's Garage embodies Richard Petty's passion for being the best. The best.
2: Whether you're adding on to a current project, upgrading your ride completely, or just need our tuning department to squeeze out that last little bit of power from your engine, you can trust Petty's Garage to give your car performance that the king would be proud of.
0: That's right. Petty's Garage has you covered, so visit them online right now at Petty's-Garage.com. So we've t- we were talking during break a little bit about um, a go-kart you had when you were a kid. I-, I found that story when I was doing my research last night um, that you-, you had a go-kart and you were kind of racing around with neighborhood kids. And y'all's was a petty cart, but it was a little bit different. Yeah, what yeah, was the story for that?
1: Yeah, and I think it was, I want to say it was 69. We were uh, about uh, 10 or 12 years old, my older brother and I. And a lot of folks in the neighborhood got them that year. You know, there's probably five or six of us, and there was this big field that we could race in. Uh, But another guy up the street named Bobby Utley, who was also a big Petty fan, as were we, he was more proactive, and he painted his Petty blue before we did. And he put a 43 on the back. And uh, so it was leading into 70 when uh, Petty's had the Pete Hamilton car. So we painted ours Petty blue and painted the front bumper red and put a 40 on the back. Uh, So it still had a Petty Enterprises go-kart, if you will. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't copy the neighbor but because the the Hamilton car came out. And, you know, I guess if it had been earlier, it may have been we'd have done red for Buddy Baker. But we did one that was Pete Hamilton. And and, uh, for the longest time, I had the frame of that. And then, you know, it was in a storage shed that I didn't clear out when I left the place years and years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, Petty Blue, red bumper, 40 on uh, what was the air cleaner on the back of the engine.
0: I was going to ask if you still had the frame and had a chance to look at it anytime recently.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I did, but uh, I, I made the mistake of not cleaning out that, that shed years ago, so I'm sure it is long gone, unfortunately. <laughs> well, at least, you know, you had the Daytona 500 winner on your card at least, you know. That was, I did, and, you know, one of the things, and, and this is <clears throat> typical, Richard, that uh, – Richard was the one that helped broker the deal to get the car for Maurice's induction uh, or his Hall of Honor uh, inductee exhibit because uh, the guy that had bought the car you know, wanted it refurbished, and, and it was refurbished. Uh, there's there's some debate, is it a petty car, or is it a Hamilton car? Richie Bars swears it's a Hamilton car, and right. Richie Bars is the one that I would go with. Yep. Uh, and, and Inman and Richard would, would feel... That way, I'm not sure. I think the owner wanted it to be a Richard Petty car because it's worth more. Understandably, but uh, you know, and and Richard was one that helped advance to other people. Maurice was on my nomination list from year one, Mm. not because my friendship with the family, but look at the numbers, right? You know, 254 wins or something for him. You know, all his wins as a crew, as an engine builder, and, and then being a crew chief as well. And Richard wanted to make sure that people realized that Chief was a lot more than the engine builder for Richard Petty. Uh, So that was one of my – there are a lot of favorite cars that I've had in here, but that was one of the the favorites because of the go-kart tie-in, because of Chief uh, and Mama Trish and and just the whole family and everything, and and to show that that Chief did – a little of everything. Yeah. A lot of engine building, but a little of everything else.
0: I'm pretty sure they did the restoration of that car at Petty's Garage. Absolutely, yeah. yes. And yeah. uh, we had another car come in there. So I spent a couple of years there before my time with the race team, and um, we had another car come in. It was a really weird deal where the guy that was buying the car, he was from Florida. He found the car online in California, but he said he didn't want to buy it. He didn't want to spend the money if it wasn't a real car, and they thought that it was – um they thought it was a buddy baker car but anyways he convinced the guys from california to bring is a charger uh, all the way to level cross and they called richie bars and they had richard dale and richie like comb over that car for a couple hours one day and when they said yep we built this car it was built here you got you know you got what you said you've got and the guy said all right here's your check and he wrote it you know and they turned around went back to california <laughs> it was a it was a pretty fun day but um Going back to, um, you know, talking about MRN stories, there's a famous story about Ned Jarrett saying that he once made a call from the restroom. Have you ever had a similar incident, maybe not from the restroom, but where you made the call for a stop and maybe where you were on the other end of pit road or had you to know, kind of think
1: on the fly? Yeah, there, there are a lot of times that you had to, you know, you, you wanted to always call what you saw and not speculate. Ned was in the restroom at Martinsville, so he could hear it. And, and Barney or, or Mike Joy had forgotten that uh, he had said he had told him in the commercial he was going to go to the restroom and they said that, I think it was Richard that actually was the one that was pitting and said Richard had a tire go a right front tire go down and he could hear him change the tire and realize that it was only a two tire stop. Mm. So, so he was able to do that and, and Ned tells the story so you wouldn't believe the guy standing beside me <laughs> in the restroom. <laughs> so I've not had one I've not had one in the restroom, but one that was funny uh, at Rockingham one year, I was on the back straightaway, and this was before they they merged the, the pits and uh, was interviewing Dave Marcus uh, who had fallen out of the race, and if somebody butts in because there's a wreck on the track, you know to turn the microphone off, and there was, you know, somebody butted in and said, you know, trouble in turn three and blah, 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 so I turned the microphone off well, I couldn't get Dave's attention to let him know we weren't still on the air you know, a lot of times I'll, you'd pull it back, but Dave just kept talking. Well, they finished calling the, the, uh, the wreck went back to the booth and the booth said, let's go back to pit road. I just reopened the microphone. Dave was still talking. <laughs> <laughs> so we rejoined the interview in progress. And then when we went to the commercial, they just busted out laughing. They said, had he been talking the whole time? I said, yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the, the funnier stories. And then uh, I was actually interviewing Earnhardt. You've, if you've heard the water bottle story, uh, when Rusty – Dale got into Rusty on the early part of the race, about lap 40, 45, something like that at Bristol. turned him around, Rusty never got back to the front. Rusty was great at Bristol, and, and you know he was mad for 450 laps. Uh, Dale finished second, and I'm interviewing him at the gas pumps, which is how they used to do it back then, and Jim had gone to Victory Lane. So I'm interviewing Dale – and all of a sudden we felt something you know a little bit of dampness and something bounced off of you know one of our shoulders or something and rusty's over you know we're standing beside the driver's door and he's over there trying to get dale's attention giving him grief about wrecking him oh yeah and then there was a you know there was a uh it was a confrontation it wasn't physical but there was a, a little discussion there that uh, rusty said i still haven't forgotten talladega this was in 93 <laughs> when dale had hit him and he flipped and uh You know as as darrell waltrip calls it they were frenemies Uh, so uh, those were two that i kind of remember as as unique interviews
0: did you ever have like um go-to crew chiefs that you always knew would give you something good if you needed it
1: and it was different at different times Mm -hmm. uh most recently todd gordon has been one of the best while he'll never say here's what i'm gonna do but you know, And and one of the things that I learned from Todd, and, and it's different today than it was when I started in the 80s, uh, that everything's so circumstantial and there's so many different scenarios, and Todd and I would spend time talking about the different scenarios, and he may say, you know, if, if you see this, you might see that, you know, and mm-hmm. how they run the race backwards uh, at a road course and different scenarios. So Todd has been one that would educate me and I knew what to look for. And there's times like he, you know, they short pitted at Richmond and they short pitted uh, or had a different strategy, one of the all star races and won both of them. But he didn't say, here's what I'm going to do. He said, you might see in that last stage, you might see somebody short pit and run uh, and stop twice rather than stop once. But it depends on where they're running. Right. You know, if they're running fifth, sixth, seventh, and they need to try to make up some time and take a risk, that's what you might see. But if you're running up front, you're probably not going to give up that track position and take that risk. So if he'd have been running up front, he wouldn't have. And and I remember in that, that scenario, I said they might, you know, we might see somebody short pit and Rusty came on and said, no, there's no way I'd short pit. Uh, and then, you know, two laps later, here they come. And it was because Todd had said, you might see this, you know, and I didn't say Joey Logano is going to short pit. He was right. with Joey. So, Todd has been kind of the more recent one, and then you know over the years, you know there were other guys. You know when I came along, Dale was kind of you know easing out. You know, but Robbie Loomis was one that was always very helpful. As much as he was kind of behind the scenes kind of guy, uh, he was always one. Uh, another guy that worked with y'all, uh, Drew Blickensterver is yep. always one that would be very forthright. Again, they're not going to say, "Here's what I'm going to do." because not because I think they trust I know they trusted us and every now and then somebody would tell you here's what I'm going to do but they knew you weren't going to say it until they did it but so many things are based on the circumstance stances so you know guys like that uh, Todd Parrott was always helpful but didn't want to talk didn't wouldn't say a lot on the air Mm -hmm. a lot of them didn't want to say something on the air but they tell you uh in in the garage area here are some of the things that you to look for uh throughout the race so those were some of me you know, Tim Brewer was another another one in the early days that would you know share information with you and then there were a lot of a lot of the crew guys that you could go to whether they got tire guys or or other people Barry Dotson was one that was always very helpful was brother John uh was always one that was very helpful so uh there were a lot of them and i think just wearing the mrn Mm -hmm. and the fact they knew we weren't going to throw them under the bus and that we weren't trying to be i got you or i got the story first Mm -hmm. you're trying to learn to articulate what's happening because if you speculate if you said well so-and-so said they're going to do this you know the circumstances might change. You're going to look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. So you really go to them to, to get information. Uh, you know, you go back to the very first race I did. Uh, Ricky Rudd ran really well and Larry on the back straightaway, and Larry McReynolds was his crew chief. Didn't know me from Adam. Mm-hmm. But Larry could not have been more helpful that day or any other time that you wanted information. Uh, Randy Dorton, if you had uh, uh, an engine question, Uh, and now Doug Yates if you had an engine question and both of them could take something complex and help the average person and I'm the average person I'm not mechanical so you dumb it down so I can understand it so I can tell the listener Uh, so Randy and and Doug have been two great engine guys that could help us or would help us
0: it sounds like you guys had a lot of time to build up some trust you know back and forth between the drivers and teams and you guys on the broadcast side
1: well now, a lot of that goes back to barney hall and i don't mean to sound like a broken record but I, I became good friends with junior johnson uh bud moore david pearson and those guys because barney said you can trust that guy and I, I was not gonna let barney hall down right uh and i think that's what the crew chiefs realized that we weren't there you know we i didn't sign up to be Geraldo. uh i didn't <laughs> right. sign up to be anything like that I wanted to report what was happening and you know marnie also taught us you don't speculate you know if you know something's going to happen you know somebody's getting ready to pit or you hear it you know when we started having the two-way radios and they said we're coming in in two laps uh but you say you know they said on the radio they are because if the circumstances can change then right so they knew that we were trying to cover the sport and uh and and just what happened what what is going to happen uh so spent a lot of time in the garage area and that's that's the thing i missed the most last year you know when i was still on the road just because of covid i get it i support what what nascar did yeah they did a phenomenal job but that was the thing that i enjoyed the most and why i enjoyed pit road uh more than anything else i did with mrn
0: that's great to hear uh switching gears a little bit i know that you have been on the Kyle Petty charity ride a time or two and that motorcycles are a big passion point for you um you know how many how many years have you done the charity ride uh
1: I think I did about six all of them and then uh I did part of one in 2008 I did most all of one in 2018 so uh all of I think uh, from like 98 to 2004 ish Gotcha. Uh, and that's one you know. I always wanted a motorcycle, in spite of my mom not wanting me to have one. But when I bought my first one, one of the objectives was, in addition to riding to a few races like the Rockingham's and Martinsville's, I wanted to go on a, the charity ride. I wanted to be a part of that. And it's just a you know a wonderful family. I, I, you know, with it being in May, it's harder to do the whole thing now right. in in my schedule. But uh, I still have some great friends. Uh, try to go to the the reunion every year and uh it's just what what it has grown to and I'm like Kyle you know if you'd have told me back in 1980 1998 1999 it'd still be going strong and and that's to Kyle's credit Morgan's credit and 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 everybody else but I thoroughly enjoyed it
0: I heard a story um that you guys so you were with uh Richard and Jim France among others I think going from Phoenix to meet up with the ride and almost got him into a spot where he may have ran out of gas you were
1: yeah you were leading the way right yeah how i became the leader is also questionable (laughs) uh i think we were leaving sonoma uh and richard had some appearances uh jim was gonna leave it started out with lance brown and i talking Mm -hmm. of of what our sunday looked like and i was doing the uh, this morning in nascar tv broadcast so i wasn't on the air it was a prn broadcast but i was doing that and was trying to figure out how i was going to either ship my bike there and you know was i going to try to fly with the drivers that were coming in later or whatever and lance and i got to talk and said well you know the king's got some appearances he and i've talked about riding and and catching up with them uh and i said "Man, that's great so you know ended up i think i put my bike on their trailer rather than with the rest of the charity ride so it was at the at the racetrack uh and then somewhere along the way, I guess Richard and Jim got to talking about it. So it was the four of us. It was Jim and Richard and and Lance and myself. And it's like, wow, is this not something <laughs> else? So we left, you know, mid-morning, and so we go a little different route trying thinking we're gonna catch up with the ride. And, you know, we weren't, you know, going like bats out of hell because that's just not how we rode and, mm-hmm. and, and the king and, and Jim didn't ride that way. But we cut some corners. So when we went through Fallon, Nevada, never forget that city. We were going from Fallon, Nevada to Austin, Nevada on Highway 50, which is called the World's Loneliest Highway, which I learned later. And there's a reason <laughs> for that. And it's 110 miles apart, give or take. So, you know, we get about 10 or 15 miles out of Fallon, and I realized there's nothing around here. Now, how I ended up up front, I don't know. I think, you know, It it was logical that Lance or I were going to, you know, watch the map and stuff like that. Right. Uh, But how I ended up up front is just either dumb luck, good or bad, however you want to look at it. So uh, we're about, you know, 10, 15 miles out. And it's like started doing the math in my head. And I think Richard and Lance were on victories. I think that's who was with the ride back then. Jim was on like a BMW or something like that. He could have gone, you know, he could have gone to Utah. He would yeah. not have had any problem. And I'm on my Harley, I'd have been close. And I think it was the Victories that had a, either a small a little bit smaller tank. And I'm doing the math and I thought, this isn't good. <laughs> we you know, you yeah, know, I, I you know, I run you know, I run Jim France and Richard Petty out of fuel. I will not be back in a in a NASCAR garage yeah. ever. <laughs> So, but I had a CB. So this truck passed, and I, I asked him. I uh, said, "You know, is there any f- gas stations between here and Austin?" He said, "Yeah, about thirty miles down the road, there's this little small uh, little bar that has uh, has gas." So, I mean, I'm looking at the speedometer. So if we got to 32 miles, I'm pulling over and I'm saying, okay, guys, I'm sorry. We're going to turn around and go back. I'd rather be embarrassed that way than embarrassed out of gas. Right. Sure enough, 26 miles. I mean, I, I'm, some things you remember. Yeah. 26 miles, we come up on this crossroad, and there's this little building off to the right. And we pull in there, and there's about a 250-gallon uh, above-ground ta- above 250-gallon tank, wasn't high test which we all ran but you know we put a couple of gallons in because it was going to get us to Austin so we go in and I'm getting water and paying for the gas and Lance is over there also getting water and while I'm paying for the gas uh, he tells I didn't see all this stuff happening but he said as Richard walked by, and nobody had anything racing-related. St- I've got the picture, and I meant to bring it in today, The of the four of us afterwards. nobody had. He had a victory motorcycle jacket on, and he didn't have cowboy hat. I don't even know if he'd put on his ball cap. And he said, there are two guys playing pool. pool yeah. And one of them looked at the other one, and he says, I'll be a son of a <laughs> – that was Richard Petty. <laughs> and Lance said, the other one looked up and said, have you lost your mind <laughs> do you know where we are <laughs> and he said the lady sitting there girl sitting there with him looked up and said well it did kind of look like him and he said they got to arguing about it and they finally looked over at lance and didn't say anything just looked at him kind of you know put their hands up and 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 he said that's the king and then like, i told you i told you that was him so richard didn't see all this and they they, he comes out of the restroom, so then they want pictures with you know they right. want to get his autograph and all that. And we go outside, and there's there's a few more that come up.
2: Where'd they come from?
1: We don't know. <laughs> there's a few, and and Richard even remembered when we talked about it later in the week. He said, "Yeah, you remember the one that had the dog? There's this <laughs> big old dog that was with him." And and when we went back, Lance and I went back the next year because we kept talking about it, and we didn't take any pictures. We forgot to take pictures. And, and Lance sent me some recently, and, and I have got a few somewhere in there. The, the next year's ride, that was about two hours out of our way, but he and I were bound and determined we were going to go by there. Uh, Richard flew. He wasn't going to do this mess, and, and Jim wasn't a part of it. Uh, we, we never caught up with the ride until we got to the motel that night. Uh, it's just we were so far behind them. But to ride with the three of them is absolutely, in you know, one of my top five memories of the charity ride or just being around. But Lance and I went back there just to take pictures. Oh, wow. And it said Middlegate, Nevada, population 18, and it was painted over and said seventeen. And we asked him what happened. He said neighbor died. <laughs> oh my I mean, and you know, we took <laughs> it's not panor- funny, but it's interesting. <laughs> we took panoramic pictures, and you know, this is two thousand two, two thousand three, and there's nothing out there. It's it's near where they used to test the original nuclear warheads. We, we found out later, mm-hmm. and it was just this little. Uh, bar that had like a 12 room hotel because we paid attention the second time. <laughs> uh, and R- Lance even sent me a picture of me, you know, putting a, a, a dollar bill. They, they had everybody sign a dollar bill and they take t- tacked it to the wall. Lance took pictures that Richard or, or postcards that Richard had signed back to him mm. uh, because we, you know, we didn't have anything the first time. But it's literally in the middle of nowhere. And I am I am a hundred percent sure that somebody would have run out of gas. It wouldn't I, I would have been close. Jim would have been fine, but Richard or Lance might have run out of gas, and we wouldn't see, be sitting here talking today because right. I would have been run out of NASCAR <laughs> a long time ago. But that picture is one of my most cherished things. That somebody was smart enough to have you know the four of us take a picture when we got to the hotel that night
0: that's awesome and it also kind of proves that even out in the middle of nowhere nevada population 17 richard petty can still draw a crowd (laughs) well then when you know
1: you know his humility but when we're talking about it later in the week he left for a couple of days to do an appearance and came back for the rest of the ride that year and we were talking about it uh and and he said ah you know they just know who we are because of tv i said richard you hadn't been in the car in how many years? You didn't have on a cowboy hat. You didn't have on glasses. How many guys from that garage would they have recognized? And he just shrugs his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's different. I mean, Richard is Richard. You yeah. know, they they may have uh, Dale had been passed by by then, but you know, there's not three people in the in the garage, especially somebody who hadn't been in a car for for at least ten years. At that point, with nothing racing-related on. Yeah.
0: And uh, you're also somebody, I don't know if we had a chance to talk with anybody yet who really knew Miss Linda, too. You know, how would you describe her in a, in a few words? Oh,
1: God. If, if there is anybody that's the matriarch of anything, and, and uh, she's more than the matriarch of just the Petty family. I mean, and, and, you know, you've got Miss Miss Elizabeth, of course, who was the original matriarch, but mm-hmm. if you look at everything that Miss Linda touched, and the thing that amazed a lot of people, you know, because I had been around them a lot, you know, when, when she passed, and I remember I was sitting on an airplane uh, and, and was, you know, wired in when I got the word that she had passed, and, uh, you know, just... But in, in, in putting together, and we don't do a lot of statements for folks that, that pass that aren't inductees, mm-hmm. but Linda's different. Linda's different because you think about the impact that she's had on NASCAR on motorsports. You know, the, the Petty family is one thing, and, you know, driving the, uh, the station wagon, you know, Mrs. the King station wagon that's in the museum. I think that is so oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. That yeah. is one of my favorite things in there. Uh, and that, that Richard and, uh, and John Lasseter wanted her to be a part of the movie. Because I remember that, that picture that I'm talking about of Richard handing me uh, uh, an autograph. I know, I remember going by those station wagons when they had the fried chicken there. But to be on school board for 16 years mm-hmm. yeah. and to serve as chair. And to be a founding member, the the founding chairperson of the Winston Cup Racing Rides Auxiliary, which is what birthed the Kyle Petty Charity Ride. It was under that umbrella, you know, and all the charity work that she did. And as Richard will tell you, to raise four kids uh, with maybe a little bit of help from the king, but you know, you know, and he'll tell you that uh, that she was a, see, she was superhuman. Wow. Yeah. As as what she did and uh just just one of the kindest most gentle uh most loving people and uh always had a smile always had a hug always had a good word for somebody but when i think about all that she did and contributed in her community uh to nascar uh and you look you know you look at and granted i'm I'm biased but you look at the four kids she raised you know their their quality yeah they really really are so she's special here right but she's special to a lot of people yeah
0: Yeah. she left quite an impact and
1: i really wish i would have had the chance to
0: get to meet her and spend some time with her um but unfortunately we came along a little bit after that um definitely want to give you a chance to talk about you know the hall of fame um kind of everything you guys have going on right now you know here we are um was today, beginning of March 2021. You know, I know you guys are open, so talk a little bit about kind of current state of things here at the Hall of Fame.
1: Well, everything right now in 2021 is, you know, you, you qualify with all things considered. Mm-hmm. All things considered, we're doing very well. Health-wise, everybody's healthy. Uh, we've been open since the middle of September. We were ready a little bit early, earlier than, a lot earlier than that to be open. We've got, and I won't bore you with all the safety protocols that we put into place. Yeah. Uh, well, but, we can tell from, from getting in here that they're there. Oh, they they are there. Well, and, you know, that we've, we have a mask mandate that people have been very respectful of, and people understand what we're doing, and they, they're patient when it takes them a little bit longer to wait to get in the simulator because you need to clean things. Uh, from a business standpoint, we're not doing events like we used to. But from a general admission standpoint, we're at about fifty-two percent of what we were the same time last year. And what we've heard from other uh, industry consultants and museums, most of them are in the twenty-five percent range. So when you look at all things considered, you know we're that bucket list thing. Yep. People are still coming and averaging people average five hundred sixty-four miles to come here.
0: Wow! Oh, wow! Average
1: five hundred sixty-four miles. Uh, 85% come from more than 50 miles. Uh, over 60% come from more than 200 miles. They stay overnight. You know, it's that bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. So we're still that. It's just the volume is down just like everything else. You know, and we've had, you know, great classes every year. You know, we are planning for the class of 2021, which will go in late. Uh, we change out exhibits uh, on a regular basis. We've just changed out our what we call our great hall. So we've got 10 cars representing all the first 10 classes. We didn't get to do a 10-year anniversary. So we've got a car from each one of those first 10 classes that was actually here as a part of their uh, induction, uh, as well as information about all 10 classes uh, just changed out. uh, In our Victory Lane area, we'd had Dale Jr.'s last car. We just got Jimmy Johnson's last car from Phoenix. And twenty of his uniforms and a bunch of his trophies, uh, and we just did our what we call our memorable moments, which highlights some memorable things from the year before. One of which is the king's uh, face mask or, or uh, face covering from when he went to Talladega because that was such a big deal race. Oh, yeah. yeah, of what happened down there with Bubba and Richard going uh, and said, "I want to be with my driver." Right. You know, so we tell memorable moments off on the track, but as well as off the track. Uh, You know, new champions case uh, have done a lot of upgrades uh, back in the end of 2019 to all of our uh, interactives, Uh, and then we installed a new Glory Road that Dale Jr. helped us pick all the cars. Uh, He picked the the theme, which were champions, Cup Mm -hmm. Series champions, and then the cars, and we were able to get the first and seventh of the three seven-time champions. We've never had two of any one driver on there, so we've got two Earnhardt, two The King, and two Jimmy, but wow. it's not just any two. It's the first and seventh of That's each amazing. of theirs. That's crazy. And then just an evolution of different ones that, that Dale was intrigued with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were older ones. Other than Jimmy and Jeffs and Tony Stewart's, all the rest of them you know, are, are 90s back to the 50s You know, just because he likes the history. Of the sport so much so uh, a lot of stuff going on we look forward to the next class and uh uh just you know it's it's just been a blessing to be here and you know to work with people like the king yeah, i mean I, i've got more king stories about you know his support here uh the very first car that we ever unveiled uh was his mm-hmm. uh and i don't, do we have time to, oh yeah to, no yeah. I, I reset
0: can, the cameras we can go for we another can keep 30. On? okay uh <laughs> I know we've so, already kept you a long time. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, that's okay.
1: Uh, I remember, God, what year? This would have been about two thousand seven. We were just starting building a hall, and I'd seen I'd seen Inman at uh, uh, Richmond, and he said King wants to ask you something. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, missed him that weekend. Says so a weekend or two later, went went and saw him at Dover in the in the uh, in the hauler. And he was at. There were a couple of other kind of museum-related type things, and I said, "Well, well I got you." I said, uh, "I want to ask you, and 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 I'm going to ask Richard Childers the same thing. If you had one car that you want to be on this exhibit we're going to do with 16, 17 other cars, what would it be?" Uh, and and so Richard, as you guys probably know, goes to a lot of museums. He and Miss Linda uh, and Dale and Mary would go to museums when they traveled so he was more interested in the museum Mm -hmm. and and so uh told him that uh uh what we were looking at and i said keep in mind we might need two (laughs) why are you gonna need two how much you gonna pay me for those (laughs) and i said well uh we'll probably need two because i've got to assume you're going in the first class of of the hall of fame and uh He said, how are y'all going to decide that? And I said, well, I really don't know because that's something NASCAR's working on because they're responsible for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're still three years from opening, but, you know, we know about this one exhibit and we've got to have a Richard Petty car and, and, you know, we'll need an Earnhardt car. And, you know, I can't go ask everybody what they want on there, but do you have a favorite? So he, again, became more interested in the museum part of it. So I said, well, you know, this was an excuse to go up there. So I said, well, I'll bring you some renderings up there and, and show you what we're doing. So I took him through all the renderings. And, and you know, he, he was very interested and, and you know, said in, in one area, you know, have you thought about including this person as a part of that? And, and, and most of them we had thought about. But, you know, he mentioned one guy I said, no, nah, we need to get them on there. So it was—it was really not just fun, but it was very informative. And Richard was one of the first people we took our exhibit designers to meet with to learn about the history mm-hmm. of the sport. So after I got through showing him all that, and then I showed him what Glory Road is, which is 18 cars that have different themes that were, were going to be changed out every two or three years. And I said, you know, here's the Hall of Honor, where your car would, where another car would be because in that first conversation he said well, I think y'all to put them in you know chronologically you know you got to start with guys like Raymond Parks and my dad and people like that and I said so you're not going to put in the most successful the most popular the most recognizable guys He said that's just how I think <laughs> and he said that the night yeah. before the first the first vote oh wow uh, I saw him at uh, one of the the petty events up in Greensboro uh, and, and he really felt like it ought to be chronological in how we did it and I said they ain't gonna burn your house down if you don't go in. they ain't gonna burn my house so I just got a plan that way so after I finished explaining all that uh, he just looked at me and he said you know the cars we have this is before it it was moved out of Randleman mm-hmm. he said you know the cars that we have you just need to tell me what you want and we'll tell Freddie and that's what you'll have
0: and wow. i was
1: take your pick blown away wow but when you think about richard it's it's about what's good for the sport yeah you know why he is always going to be aware of what's good for richard petty Motorsports, petty enterprises back in the day or the now the petty museum so what do you want and i thought i knew but it's like i didn't expect that so i said L- let me get back to you yeah. I, I said let me get back to you so a few weeks later we were going to be in bristol and and i talked to lance or brian or somebody and you know just said you know is there a time that i can just go by the the bus and talk to him uh and they gave me a time and and i went in there i said well here's what here's what i want to do uh and if something changes but what i'd like to have said i'd like the 67 most successful car I said I'm partial to the all blue Mm -hmm. and you know I know you know you are too with all due respect to S.D.P., but it's going to be there for probably three years you know the most successful the winningest car in NASCAR history what you did it's all blue and then uh, when you get in assuming it's whether it's first or second year you know then let's do an S.D.P. car up there and you know you know you tell me which one's best I said I think you know probably one of the dodges that's 74 75 ish and he said okay (laughs) then we spent the next 55 minutes talking about the the elections because it's 2008 and yeah you know know, he's into that (laughs) i mean it wasn't even a five minute conversation but he says you know you tell me what you want and uh you know that that's just that's one of the things i love about what i do and why i tell the people that work here that it's not about us and when the most successful person and family in the history of sport do this, that's how we need to treat people. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you know he's that north star, and uh, so that's that's one of my my favorite Richard stories. And uh, I think the only reason he wasn't unanimous in the first class is he didn't help himself. <laughs> <laughs> he was lobbying for his dad, so I think some people listened to it. Yeah. Right.
0: That's. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. That's some great insight. Uh, I know we've taken up way more of your time than we said we would and broke a camera in the process broke a camera in the process but uh, I can't can't thank you enough for spending time with us and sharing these stories
1: well when you when you're talking about uh, the subject I like a lot and and just you know there's so many other stories of that what Richard I see Maurice's sticker on your computer Mm -hmm. you know uh, Chief was very special as was Mama Trish uh, and seeing Mama Trish fight uh, her cancer, for one goal, she was going to be here when Chief got in, mm-hmm. and that was important. Yeah. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, not a lot of little boys grow up to even meet their childhood heroes, much less be able to call them friends. And when people like Richard and Chief and Enman, and I've got other Enman stories. <laughs> When when they, when your childhood heroes are people you can call first personal friends, you have been blessed. Absolutely.
0: Well, we're gonna probably write down everything we didn't get to cover today, and call you again here <laughs> yeah. in a few months, and and uh, come use the Hall of Fame conference room again because there's a lot on my list we didn't get to. Yeah, and but if you
2: ever want to come up to the garage, we can set up in our conference room.
1: You know, I, I know need to, I need to get by, I want to get back up there. I really I need to get back up there. I love going up there and just walking through and seeing stuff and you know you always even here, but there you always see stuff it's like either i remember that or Mm -hmm. grew up around that or i didn't know that or you know when i look at miss linda's doll collection i look at richard's collection of guns and things like that it's it's just it's just something that's so cool and you you know you see the different cars and and the work that petty's garage is doing Well, if I got one of those cars, I would be in trouble.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know. I did get get to
1: drive one one time. uh, I went out with one of the guys. uh, I think it was when Stedman was there, and uh, one that they had done a Challenger, and I love that Challenger body. Uh, So, well, we just gotta be careful with you that you don't
2: run out of gas with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a risk.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thanks again so much. Yeah. Thank you so Uh, much. We'll have to have you on again and. Uh, yeah, this has been great. It's been absolutely awesome. been
1: my pleasure. Appreciate what y'all do.
0: And how about that? That was a awesome episode. Yeah. I can't thank Winston again enough for sharing his insight into the sport and his stories from, uh, you know, 30-plus career as a broadcaster. It was amazing to sit down with him and talk through all that stuff and hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you can find this podcast also you can listen on apple podcast spotify we appreciate you guys giving us a like leaving reviews sh- sending us your feedback letting, you- letting us know what you think share it with your friends please share it with your friends tell everybody you know about it we need it so yep. appreciate your support remember if you have a question for us on the podcast you can tweet us using hashtag ask we're hoping to get to those in future episodes with an extra segment so thanks for your engagement and your participation and your support see you next time